Thank you, John. Good morning again, everyone. My name's Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, if you're visiting or in town for family, we're really glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning. I wanted to just uh, expand on what David had to say just, just briefly before we get into the message, because we are really excited. We've been able to add four new missions partners uh, to our list, and so now we have 10. Um, and the way that happens, I thought it was important just for you guys to know. I mean, logistically, the missions team has been um, praying and talking through folks who have asked us to consider partnering with them in the gospel mission that they're called to in all uh, the, the various places where they are serving. And so the missions team has been working really hard talking with uh, those people. We consider it a true partnership when we do partner with people financially. And the piece that I just wanted to remind you all about and encourage you all with is that this, uh, the funding, the, the financial piece of this partnership comes from your giving. Your giving to the work of the kingdom here at Trinity enables us not only to do ministry here, but also to develop these partnerships from New Delhi, Ethiopia, and to right here in Orange County. And so we're, we're committed to giving a portion of the offerings that come in. We're at 8%. Uh, currently, we give 8% of all that's given to uh, the church to establish these partnerships throughout the world. So I'm mentioning that just to encourage you. Thank you for your generosity and your faithfulness to gifts. You are a part of these partnerships. And uh, to remind you that as we're coming up at the end of the year, um, the reality is that's when uh, a lot of our giving comes in. And that's because a lot of you are very generous at this time in the year. And that enables us to look ahead and, and determine how much can we partner. And with regard to the ministry here uh, in Orange County, as well as the partnerships that we establish um, across the world. So just wanted to say that and thank you for um, your generosity. And we look forward to other ways that you can partner uh, with those ministries. So... Having said that, today is our final message on 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter, as we have seen over the past three, four weeks now. It's a letter about suffering and hope. It's about this pattern of suffering and glory. And Peter says this pattern of suffering and glory is the pattern of all the Bible. It's the pattern that we see play out from God's good creation, his original intention, a world free from suffering and sin, but yet as humanity has fallen and moved away and gone astray from God and his purposes, suffering has entered the world. So the entire Bible says, well, what is God going to do with that? There's a pattern he puts into motion. It's a pattern of through suffering, greater glory will emerge. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of Jesus. And Peter says, it's the story of everyone who follows Jesus. So he's been explaining this throughout the letter in all five chapters. That in our, in our suffering, in our trials, the way that we experience it, sometimes we can feel like we are losing hope. But Peter's been saying it can also be the way that we discover what he describes as living hope. A hope that never dies, a hope that nothing can shake, 
that nothing can get to. And here, at the end of the letter, Peter summarizes it all in one statement. He says, here is what I've been trying to tell you. Here is what I've been trying to show you. He's been writing to people who are in the midst of suffering, and they're confused and shaken by all of it. Verse 14, look at that with me. Here's the summary. He says, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that whether you are suffering because of your faith, like many of the people to whom Peter was writing to, or suffering grief in various kinds of trials, Peter says you need to know God has grace. God has gifts for the suffering. And he says these gifts are true. They are real. It's not wishful thinking. They are powerful enough to keep you encouraged and keep you standing no matter what happens. So as we conclude our study on 1 Peter, the title of today's message is God's Gifts for the Suffering. Now I know it's Thanksgiving this week, so the focus is on Thanksgiving. But once November kicks into gear, it seems like we're already looking ahead to Christmas. Now all the decorations went up. Uh, on November 1st, at least around where we live, at all the shopping centers. So we're thinking about gifts that we need to buy. Maybe some of you or your kids have put together their wish list, what they want for Christmas. Um, but when, when you give a gift, when you think hard and you're like, okay, I've got to give a gift. When you give a gift, what response from the person you're giving that gift to do you most appreciate? What do you most want to hear? Maybe it's oh, this is exactly what I wanted. That's a good one. But I think there's an even better response, something that's even more special, and that is, oh, it's not what I wanted, but it's exactly what I needed. I think that's even more special because it means that you know them so well, even better than they know themselves. What gift would be best for them. So the Bible teaches that if we had access to God's vantage point, the full heart and the mind of God, we would see that God knows us so well that He knows what gifts are best for us. And this is so important when it comes to our suffering or our trials. Because what we want I know what I want is I want a full explanation from God, an account from God. Why is this happening? Why do I have to go through this? Why this trial? I want an immediate end to the pain and a promise from God, nothing hard like this will ever happen to you again. That's what I want. But, but Peter would have us to, to consider this, that what we might want could be different than what we need. And if God knows us better than we know ourselves, He knows exactly what we need, and He has gifts. He has gifts for us in our suffering that can enable us to stand firm and find hope. Let's look at three of those gifts this morning here from the conclusion in Peter's letter. First, if you're following along and taking notes, 
In the outline, you'll see it's a posture to take. The first of these gifts is a posture to take. God gives the suffering a posture to take in life. He gives the suffering a posture to take toward Him. And suffering is, for most of us, the only way we learn to take this posture. It's the posture of humility, of humility. Look at verse 5. Peter says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. What is the posture of humility? It's the posture of weakness, of need, and dependence. I've used this description before, but I, I think when I look at all the Bible teaches on humility, I describe it and summarize it using the three F's. Humility is saying, I am finite. I have limits, way more limits than I ever want to admit. It's saying, I am fragile. I am weak. And I am broken far more than I ever would want to admit. And I am fallen. I'm sinful. More sinful than I ever would want to admit. Humility is living in that posture. The polar opposite of that posture is pride. Pride is the posture of independence, of self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. Pride resists limits. Pride hides or denies weaknesses, and pride hates saying, more than anything else probably, I'm wrong. I've sinned. God, Peter says, resists the proud. We see why. Because by definition, pride is resistance to God, to His authority, to His will, and His gifts, and His grace. C.S. Lewis calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind, because it is putting ourselves above God, before God, and over God. So humility is the posture then of receiving, and God can give grace to those who receive. But pride is the posture of resisting or rejecting grace and saying, no, thank you. Now, Peter, let's, let's talk about Peter. How did he learn this? Peter learned this whole concept from Jesus. Multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus said this, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, if you know a little bit about Peter's story, we've been talking a lot about Peter's story. You'll know that G Peter was close to Jesus. He heard Jesus say this probably all the time. But for Peter, he only really learned to take this posture himself through his own experience and struggle with suffering. Peter was proud. He saw himself as first. He was in Jesus' inner circle. And we see this popping up throughout the Gospels. When we see Peter uh, acting, he's acting impulsively, saying, let me go first. Let me be first. And on the eve of Jesus' trial, before he went to his crucifixion, Jesus is warning the disciples about what's to come. He says, somebody here is going to deny me. And Peter says, I will never deny you. Maybe these guys will, but me, never. You see, he's putting himself above 
all the other disciples. But when the time of suffering came, he denied Jesus three times. And this brought Peter to his absolute lowest place. He was humbled. And then when Jesus rose again and he came to Peter, he came to this humbled Peter. What did he give Peter? What did he give him? Not punishment, not scolding, not a reprimand. He gave him grace. You see? Peter was finally in a posture where he was able to receive it. And it absolutely changed Peter's life. He became more humble than ever and more bold than ever. He was able to handle suffering, move into suffering, and become, through this letter, a pastor and a teacher to those who are suffering. So how did Peter learn to take that posture? It's the way that everyone has to learn. Not by humbling himself voluntarily, but by being humbled through trials. I think Peter would say, I would never have asked for the trials that I went through, but in those trials, God has given me a great gift. Humility. The posture of humility. So Peter says in verse 5, clothe yourselves. He uses this language of clothing. Clothe yourselves with humility. And this word here, clothe yourselves, is a very specialized word in the original language. It's used for how a slave would tie a slave apron around themselves. That's what it was used for. So these clothes that Peter is talking about is the clothing of the lowest of the low. This is not a word that anyone would want to use for themselves. It's like if you're can imagine children playing dress-up, if you play dress-up or costumes or whatever as a child, and you have a bunch of clothing there, and there's different options. It's like, well, I want to be the king. There's the king's clothing. I want to be the queen, or I want to be the warrior. I want to be the prince or the princess, and there's the slave apron hanging up. No one is saying, ooh, ooh, I want to be the slave. I choose that as my costume. That's mine. And Peter says, If you want the gift of humility, you need to take that apron. How can we ever take it? Peter says, we learn to take it in our hardships and our suffering. Verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time. Now think about this picture. We think of God's mighty hand, humble yourself under His hand. At first, we might picture this huge divine hand of God pressing us down, saying, If you will humble yourself, I will humble you. I will take my mighty hand and I will push you down into the ground. I will push you down with suffering and trials. But that's not the picture here at all. The phrase mighty hand is found in the story of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Over and over again, as that story is retold, it's retold like this. It's God's mighty hand that took you out. An example from Deuteronomy 7. It says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Friends, this is very important. This is not a hand of punishment. This is a hand of protection. We might feel like God is punishing me in my suffering to humble me, but that is not at all what Peter is saying. He's saying God is protecting me in my suffering that at the proper time you might lift me up. God says, come under my mighty hand. When you struggle, when you're in a trial, when you're suffering, humble yourself under my mighty hand and learn that I am God and you are not. I am strong and you are not. To get under there, we have to take the posture of humility. John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. So in our suffering, this is what Peter is saying. God's mighty hand wants to introduce us to our greatest friend. God's mighty hand wants to protect us from our greatest enemy, our pride, thinking that we can do it on our own. And this is at the heart of the message of the gospel that we are saved by grace, that we live by grace from start to finish. That requires of any belief system, of any worldview, the most humility of anything to accept because the gospel says you don't deserve this. You can't earn this. This is only for frail and fragile and fallen people. All other religious approaches to life play right into our pride. They tell us, here are some things for you to do. Here is a spot for you to earn. Here is a place for you to look down on other people. But in our suffering and in our trials, God has a gift to give us. It's the gift that opens us up to all of the rest of his grace. That's the posture of humility. No gift could be better than that. This leads us to the second gift of God for the suffering. Peter says here, God gives us a practice to use also. The flow of thought continues on. Look at verse 6 into verse 7. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter is saying to learn this humility, to stay in the posture of humility, we need to use this practice that God gives us here. What is the practice? He says it's casting all our anxiety on him. Now, the word here for cares and anxiety, it's this Greek word, merimna. And listen to what it means. It's a very interesting word. It says, this word comes from the idea of a part separated from the whole, or that which fractures a person's being into parts. Now, isn't that what anxiety feels like? When it's really bad and it's really heavy, it's like we're being disintegrated in our anxiety. We feel like, I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am. All I have is my worries and my anxiety. And God is saying here, I want to make you whole again. I want to give you this practice to use. The more that you use it, the more I'm putting you back together. 
Now, what we need to see here is that Peter is making a connection between pride and anxiety. There's a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. He's no longer alive, but he was a Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist. And one of his main insights that's carried on through, throughout his work is the idea that at the root of our anxiety is a sense of unfulfilled responsibility. Unfulfilled responsibility. We feel like there's stuff for us to do, but we're not doing it. That resonates with me. I feel that. But I'd like to offer a modified version of that insight based on this verse. That the root of anxiety is unassigned responsibility. Unassigned responsibility. God sees us weighed down with our cares and our anxieties, and He says to us, I didn't give you that. Throw it back to me. Cast it back. It's mine. But here's a connection with pride. Pride says, no, I, I, I got this. I can carry it. I can do it. It's my job. It's like the picture of a little child trying to help unload the grocery cart or carry the groceries, and it's like this big, giant case of water bottles from Costco. I don't know what that thing weighs. It probably weighs like 15 pounds or something. It's like, no, I can carry it, and they're dragging it, and they're trying to put it on their back and pick it up. It's like, no, that's not your job. You carry the tortillas. <laughs> I'll carry the water. The gift that God gives us in our anxiety and all of our cares is the practice of casting it back on him. There's so much here. You know, first thing we need to see here, if you struggle with anxiety, and I do, is that God says he knows. He knows how anxious we can be, especially when we're suffering and we're in trials. That's why this verse is here. He knows how the things that we carry weigh us down, make us feel like we're all broken apart and we're lost inside. He knows. And so we can admit it. Christianity, a Christian, is not, is not stoicism. It's not about being stoic. It's not about pretending that we're not anxious. Oh, I'm a Christian. I should be able to figure this out. I shouldn't be worried. I shouldn't have care or anxiety. No, not at all. Peter knew everyone he was writing to had a lot of anxiety. They were suffering. He said, don't hide it. Don't pretend like I'm fine. Admit it. For me to speak personally, for the longest time, I never wanted to say the words, I am anxious. I didn't want to admit that because I felt like saying that would mean I am weak. I can't do it. I can't handle it. I need help. I was too proud to even say the words. Even just yesterday, when I was finalizing, working on this point that had to do with anxiety in my sermon, I was anxious. So I was trying to figure it out. And I said to two people, would you pray for me? And that's really hard for my pride. But I'm so thankful for their prayers. So we can admit it. Nearly 20% of Americans, there's a spectrum of anxiety. Um, but 20% of Americans experience an anxiety disorder in a given year. Over 30% experience an anxiety disorder over the course of their lifetimes, and the rate is rising. We live in a time of anxiety. There are many causes of that anxiety, from chemical 
to mental, to spiritual, to physical. But Peter says, God knows. We can admit it. And then we can cast it on him. The, world, the word here is you can hurl it back. You can toss it back. You can cast everything you care about and are anxious onto me, God says. I want to take it. And this is a very simple but a very profound theological statement that Peter is making here. He says, he cares about you. Do you believe that? My Christian friends, do you believe that? Do we believe that God cares about everything we care about, that there's nothing we care about that he says, I'm too busy for that. I've got more important things to take care of in running the universe. No, Peter says, the mighty God, the all-powerful God, he cares about everything you care about. Here at the end of this section, Peter gives a short statement about, about the devil, about spiritual evil. We might have a lot of questions about that, but Peter says something that I think is very important when it comes to the spiritual evil that we don't fully understand. He's saying here, if you look at this, seems like he's saying one of the devil's main strategies is to tell the suffering Christian this. You are alone in this, and no one cares about you. You are alone. No one cares. Peter says, when there's a, a voice, it's like a loud, roaring lion voice coming at you and says, you are alone. No one cares about you. He says, resist it, firm in the faith. You are never alone. Others share in your suffering, and God cares about you. Throw it all to God. James, we read earlier in our call to confession, says he'll flee from that. Saying that when, when does the devil give up? It's when he sees a humble person casting their anxiety and throwing it all to God. Because the strategy of the devil is to sell you the sin that caused his fall. To believe that God doesn't love you, he doesn't care, and you can do it better alone without him. Pride. God's gifts to the suffering. He gives us the gift of a posture to take, of humility. He gives us a practice of throwing all of our anxiety back onto him. And finally, in verse 10, we see God gives us a promise to hold on to. Now, this promise in verse 10, it's kind of interesting. Maybe it's kind of just dismissed to those who are comfortable. Those who are doing fine in life would say, that's, that's good. But it's everything to those who are suffering. Look at verse 10. Peter says, here's the promise to hold on to. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. This promise is a gift that we only realize how much we need when we suffer. When trials come, there's a twofold aspect to this promise. In this promise in verse 10, God says, I promise, I promise you this won't last forever. Now, when things are going our way, when life is fine and we're in control and we feel like we're on top, 
isn't it the last thing we want to hear God saying to us is, this won't last forever. We don't want to hear that. We want to say, no, we want this to last forever. We want all the good things that I'm enjoying. I want to be on the top. I want that to last forever. We don't want to hear that. But when things are not going our way and disappointment happens and trials come, the thing we most want to hear from God is this won't last forever. Friends, especially if you're bearing something very hard this morning, God has a promise. This won't last forever. There is a great imbalance in the timeline of the universe, Peter says here. Suffering is for a little while, but glory is eternal. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says it like this. The Apostle Paul says, For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Suffering won't last forever. God promises it. But glory will. Glory will. The second aspect of this promise, God is saying, I promise you I will give you all the grace you need. Now, when things are going well for us and we're comfortable and fine, we feel like we're in control and we're on top of things, the last thing we want to hear God saying to us is, you can't do it yourself, but I can do it for you. But when things are not going our way and when trials come and when suffering comes, the thing we most need to hear from God is, you can't do it yourself, but I can do it for you. And Peter's driving this promise home. He's using four different words. They're all kind of synonyms. They all mean pretty much the same thing. Verse 10, he says, God will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. And this is the greatest gift of God that he can give us in our suffering. That we come to know God as the God of all grace. Of all sufficient grace. That the grace that calls us, Peter says, is the grace that will carry us home to the end forever. Now, one of the main draws of early Christianity was how it provided hope and resources for the suffering. This message of the cross and resurrection, this pattern of suffering to glory. It gave a hope so unique and so compelling, so different than anything that had ever been said, that then, in Peter's time, and now in our time, it's the suffering, it's the marginalized, it's the humble who run to Christianity because of its resources for suffering. That it's the comfortable and the proud who resist. This gets to the heart of the message of the gospel of Christianity. Because all other approaches to suffering, they throw us back onto ourselves and our pride. It's up to us to get through. Every other belief system at the end of the day will throw your anxiety back onto you. Say it's up to you to get through. But the gospel alone says it's up to God. From beginning to end, all of it, the promises of grace for our every need. Peter says, friends, we can know 
this promise and we can trust and bank everything in our lives on it. It is not an empty hope. It is not a blind optimism. He says, verse 14, the summary of the letter, this is the true grace of God. He says, you can trust it because it's true. I want to close with a final story. One of my favorite portrayals of the resources of the gospel for the suffering is in the film um, Amistad. I think it's from 1997, so it's a little bit old. But it's based on a true story. It's based on the true story of an African slave revolt on a ship that was still out at sea. So the Africans took over the ship. They told, they left a couple of people alive to drive the ship and said, go that way. It was supposed to go to Cuba, where they would have been enslaved. But instead, the ship ended up in New York. And at the time, the state of the New, York, uh, New York was a free state. There was no slavery allowed. So when the ship arrived in, in New York, everyone was like, what do we do? Are they free or are they slaves? So the movie Amistad is about that story. But a part of the story is uh, all, the, the, all the chaos and all the different sides that are coming to bear uh, on this trial. And one of, the, one of the groups that's there to support the Africans is the abolitionists. The abolitionists are there. They're praying. And one of them, at a certain point in the story, has a Bible and gives it to one of the Africans. And so there's a scene where they're in prison. And this, this man is looking at the Bible. His other friend is in the corner, sees him looking at the Bible and says, you don't have to pretend to be interested in that. I'm the only one here looking at you. He says, no. I think I'm beginning to understand. And of course, he, he can't read English, but this is one of those Bibles that has pictures throughout. So he's just looking at the pictures and he's piecing together the story. And he says, look, their people have suffered more than ours. Their lives were full of suffering. And he flips the page. And he says, but then he was born. It's a picture of Jesus in the manger. And everything changed. And then he says, everywhere he went, the sun went with him, the halo that's often on Jesus in those pictures. The sun went with him and followed him everywhere. He healed people with his hands. He flips the page. He protected them. It's the picture of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus protecting her. People gave him their children. And then he says, but look, they accused him of a crime. And then his friend who's listening to him tell the story, he says, he must have done something wrong. And then he says, why? What have we done wrong? And then his friend says, okay, that, that, that's just a story. And he says, well, that's not it. And he flips the page. He says, he appeared to them again. It shows the resurrection. And then he rose into the sky. He said, if we die here, that's where we go. I was, I was watching this clip again on YouTube, and there, there are the comments there on the video. It's always an interesting thing to look at YouTube video comments. But there are a few of them who are saying, yeah, I'm an atheist, but I love this scene. I don't believe it, but this is one of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen. 
And why? Because even if we don't know if it's true, we so want it to be true. That someone, a story that says someone came into our world of suffering with healing, with protection, someone safe, someone who suffered with us, someone who suffered for us, innocent and perfect, who rose again. Is it just a story? Peter says it's a story, but no, it's not just a story. It is the story. It is true. He says to the humble who cast everything upon the promises of God. Because this story is true, he will carry you now through whatever you face into eternal glory. You will be standing in glory at the end. Peter says, no matter what you face, this is the true grace of God. You can stand firm in it. Friends, we can stand firm in it. The true grace of God. Let's pray. God, Almighty God, gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are truly and indeed the God of all grace. I pray right now for all of us. We may be experiencing something right now that's weighing us down. I pray for those who are in a trial, who are suffering. I pray that you would give them the gift of humility, that they would cast their anxieties on you, and that you would assure them with your promise. I pray that you would build deep within us the resources, the resources of faith to look outside of ourselves and look to you, knowing that in Jesus we have something solid that we can stand on no matter what. Help us now take our stand there and in the future when hard things come and when we fall, help us regain our footing and stand again, opening our hearts to receive the gifts that you have for us. Encourage our hearts. Strengthen us. Give us boldness, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?